Ephesians chapter 4, and we're reading uh, 426 to 5, 2. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a soothing aroma. Loving Father, what a beautiful commission you have given to us to be imitators of the living God. It would be, it would be a crushing task, Father, were it not for your amazing grace, for the union that you've given us with your Son, for the Spirit whom you've made to indwell us, for the power, Father, the resurrection power that you have filled us up with in Christ. We pray that you would make us attentive, that you would, Lord, you would speak to our hearts uh, through this text, and, and Lord, that you would make us uh, powerfully useful to you to spread your, your temple, your dwelling place in the midst of mankind over all the earth as you continue to create for yourself a people for your own possession. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I think I have said more times than I can remember to more people than I can count that if all of us as believers would actually do what the Apostle Paul has instructed us to do in these two chapters, Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, that every Christian marriage would be a great marriage Every relationship within the body of Christ would be a great relationship. But I hope that by now, if you've been with us through this series, you realize that God's agenda is way, way bigger than that. That God is in the midst of a marvelous, huge construction project. And that that project, when it's finished, is going to... It's, it's going to impact the entire creation, the heavens and the earth. And as, as Paul said in Ephesians 1.10, the day is coming when all things in heaven and on earth will be summed up under one head, Jesus Christ. That, that construction project begins with the salvation of individuals. God, from ages past, declared that He would create a people and that he would save people. He 
predestined us to adoption as sons. He, he reached into, into history and he sent his son to show us himself and to die in our place. And then he saw to the proclamation of the gospel. And every person who has heard that amazing message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and has believed that message, has been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside you as a down payment of your eternal inheritance. And God has saved you. And and what Paul says when he talks about salvation in Ephesians is a little different than in some of his other writings. He speaks of of this amazing gift of salvation as an accomplished reality, and, and he sees it in one as one reality from beginning to end. A by grace through faith in Christ salvation. In fact, we saw in chapter two, verses one through seven, that that Paul he kind of narrated his way for us all the way from us being lost and dead in our transgression to being raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. And as we as we saw in that passage, he saw that as one thing that God had done, and that was before he ever mentioned faith, and it was before he ever mentioned works. It was a by grace salvation accomplished by the living God. God saves individuals. He He puts His Holy Spirit inside of us and then He lavishes His grace upon us. Paul talks about the unfathomable riches of Christ that God has, that that He has poured out upon us like a waterfall, a floodgate of grace. And so He fills us up with Christ. That's what Paul prays we will know and we will experience at the end of chapter 3. Together with all the saints, we'll know, we'll comprehend the, the immeasurable magnitude of God's love for us in Christ and we'll be filled up to all the fullness of God. And then God takes all these individuals that he's filling up with Christ and he brings us together and Jew and Gentile, slave and free man, male and female, no distinction. He brings us together and, he, and that grace that he has poured out in each life, he, he uses to build up and fill up his body. He makes us one new, mature man in Christ. And and he tells us in chapter 4, verse 13, that the goal of that aspect, that second tier of this grand construction project, is that we will attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. He goes from plural to singular. And that mature man is our head, because he says until we attain to the measure of of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. So you've got saved individuals being filled up with Christ and God brings them together into a church, into one body, with one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope, one spirit, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all and in all. He makes us one and, and He fills up that church with Himself. And in each case, He fills it to overflowing. He fills us to overflowing. He fills his church to overflowing. And then comes the grand objective. And that is that his church will overflow into a world of lost people. And he will continue to expand, as Greg Beale said, to expand his temple on earth until the whole earth is consumed by that temple. And that's what the new heavens and the new earth will be. 
It will be heaven and earth united with one head, and all of creation will be the dwelling place of God in the midst of his redeemed people. That's his, re- that's his plan of redemption. That's his construction project. And then Paul tells us that each of us plays an important part in that, in that project. And your foremost role and my foremost role has to do with the building up of his body. Not to the exclusion of our impact in the world, but in order that we, as his church, will impact this world powerfully. We are, beloved, we are the continuing incarnation of Christ on earth together, not individually. There's a reason God didn't give every spiritual gift to Mike Mays. He gave different gifts to different individuals and he brought us all together so that with this marvelous interdependence that he created, we will be One mature man, a new man in Christ, impacting this world for Christ. That's that's the plan. And our part in it, he says at the beginning of chapter 4, he says that that the worthy walk, the the walk that is worthy of this marvelous calling of, of all of whose we are and what we have been given in Christ, that walk at its very essence, is that we will be diligent to guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that we will thereby be useful to God to keep His body together as one and and grow it up. And then a little later there in chapter 4, as we saw last time, verses 14 to 25, he he builds toward the very first imperative in chapters 4 through through 6. I mentioned before there's only one Formal imperative in the first three chapters. And it's the, it's the, the imperative. Remember. Remember what you were when you were separated from God. Strangers to the covenants. Without hope and without God in the world. Remember that. It's important that you remember that. And now in chapters 4 through 6, there are 40 formal imperatives. And about another 20 functional imperatives. He's moving from a grace calling to grace-based holiness. And the first imperative that he gives us is speak truth to one another in love. Verse 25 is the formal version of that imperative. Speak truth. Laying aside all falsehoods, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And he already talked about every member being used by God to build up the whole body. So first is speak truth. And now, starting at verse 26 and through much of the rest of this letter, he moves us from the command to speak truth to the command to live the truth that we speak. In verses 26 through 32, he does something very interesting. He zeroes in on four construction tools that God uses to build up his body. And he commands us to reclaim them. He's already redeemed them because they're part of us. He's already redeemed them because he's redeemed us. But he's commanding us to claim them back from the divider 
and to hand them back to him. And what we quickly see is that these four implements of construction are the divider's favorite four, or they're at least among the divider's favorite four. Satan loves to use each of these things to tear down what God is building up. Those four things, and I'll put them up here, those four implements are anger, hands, words, and hearts. Anger, hands, words, and hearts. Now the first one, of course, we find surprising. The imperative, and it's a straightforward imperative in verse 26, is be angry. Now, (laughs) if you're familiar with the writings of Paul, you know that every other time, every other time that Paul speaks of the anger of human beings, he speaks of it as sin. In fact, just later in the same chapter, in verse 31, he lumps it together with a bunch of very, very divisive behaviors of human beings, and he says, put that all away from you. So, so what's going on here? Is anger righteous or unrighteous? Is it good or is it sin? Well, the verse 26 is, means what it says, and it does, uh, then anger is not inherently sinful. The anger of men. Be angry, yet do not sin. Now, can you think of any instances in the Bible, in the New Testament specifically, in which uh, the anger of a man was righteous anger that actually served God's purposes instead of being sinful? Yeah, if you look at the perfect man, you can find quite a number of examples. In all four Gospels, uh, we have the record of the of Jesus overturning the tables of the money changers at the temple. And he said, he said, you have turned my father's house, a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. Does that sound like maybe he was a little angry? How about in Matthew chapter 23 when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! On the outside you're beautiful, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. That sound like Jesus was happy with those guys? How about when he said to his disciple, Peter, in Matthew 17, right after Jesus had said that he must be delivered up to the scribes and Pharisees, he must suffer at their hands and be killed and be raised from the dead. And Peter said, no way. That can never happen to you, Lord. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You have set your mind not on the things of God, but on the things of men. You think Jesus was angry with Peter at that point? How about someone other than Jesus? How about one believer angry at another believer on behalf of God in order to build up the body rather than to tear it down? The one that, you may think of others, but there's one that just really stands out to me, and you see it in Galatians chapter 2. And, and the Apostle Paul is, re, is publicly rebuking his fellow Apostle Peter because Peter had led the entire Jewish Christian population in Antioch into a terrible hypocrisy, including, including Paul's own Beloved co-worker Barnabas. 
And the way that hypocrisy manifested itself is that they refused to even sit at a table to eat with Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul said that Peter, publicly he said, Peter had not been straightforward about the truth of the gospel. That's a pretty pretty strong accusation. You think he was angry with Peter? Yeah, I think he was, and I think that's a really, really good example of how God can use reclaimed anger when that anger is submitted to him, and it's really his anger, us acting as the agent of his anger, to build up what somebody else is tearing down of his construction project. But the problem, guys, with uh, even with righteous anger, when, when we're angry on God's behalf, the problem with that is that, we talked about it some this morning, we're doing constant battle with the, the habit of the old flesh, with the, the world, with Satan himself. And so it doesn't take long for righteous anger to kind of morph its way into a very unrighteous and prideful and hurtful anger. And so Paul says, be angry, and, but then he says, do not sin. And then he gives us two more negative commands in that one verse. He says, uh, two verses, do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. And, and I, believe, I believe that the last of those is uh, that middle one, do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's what keeps the last one from happening. That's what ensures that, that we're not giving Satan a foothold in our anger. See, what Paul is saying, if you are righteously angry, it's not supposed to last very long because you're supposed to deal with it. You're supposed to address it. And you're supposed to address it now. There are a couple of things that we find in the New Testament that have great time urgency. One is when Jesus in Matthew 5 says, if your brother has something against you, drop your sacrifice that you were going to bring to me and go reconcile with him. And now Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. How does this play out in in real life? Well, I have I have one example. It's a it's a meager example, and I've shared it with you before. But I'm thankful that uh, to say that so far it still holds true. After 34 years of marriage, or in 34 years of marriage, I have been relentless about not going to sleep until I've dealt with whatever anger I have against my beloved wife. And I always think it's righteous, but let's just say occasionally it actually, <laughs> occasionally it actually has been. And, and then, and, and of course, the, all that happened a long time ago before she was perfect. <laughs> you know, before the sanctification was over, but, but I didn't go to sleep until I had addressed that anger with her. And in 34 years, I've never awakened one single morning with resentment toward my wife, ever. And and that's a beautiful thing. Now, it's, it helps to be married to someone who's perfect. But anyway. <laughs> but this is a big deal to God. And, and I think it's astonishing that this is the first, this is the first construction implement that God tells us to reclaim. I think this takes some, this means that we need to, we need to be thoughtful. We need to, to weigh the situation. We need to be very careful and very prayerful that our anger belongs to him and not to us and that we deal with it 
quickly. And by the way, don't let the sun go down on your anger is a figure of speech. It doesn't mean that if it just got dark and you're upset with a brother or sister in Christ, you get to hold on to it for a whole day. All right. The second implement that God is telling us to reclaim for the builder is our hands. In verse 28, he says, Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. This is really, again, it's beautiful because labor got cursed when man sinned. And here's a way that we reclaim the labor of our hands so that it blesses in the midst of living under the curse. That labor blesses. How do you steal? Well, especially back then, you stole with your hands. Now you can steal, you know, on the Internet. But you stole with your hands. And and there were people in the community of, of God's people who were who were using the hands that God gave them to take something away from her brother or sister for their own, well, what they thought was their own well-being. So it was at the expense of that other person. And now God, God is saying, use those same hands, work hard, in order that you may give to a brother or sister who has need. And so, so now you're building up instead of tearing down. You're reclaiming for God that which belongs to him. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, God, through Paul, tells us that we are agents of God's provision for us and for our families. And he says to the one, if if there's one who will not work, let him not eat. But brothers and sisters, the reason that we labor with our hands, when we do that to provide as agents of God's provision for us, that's not the best thing that we do with our hands. The best thing we do with our hands is to labor for somebody else's well-being. And God blesses that all over the place. He multiplies that. And there are many, many very, very generous people in this body. And God loves that. Oh, one last thing about uh, about hands, about giving, is, is that uh, if you look back at what we've been given in the first three chapters, you realize that this is not a zero-sum game. You can give and give and give, and you never lack. Because God's grace to you is, is a waterfall. It's a waterfall. So you're not going to run out because you have given what God has put into your hands. And, and that those material things, are for they belong to him in the first place, and they're for his use, not, not for our purposes. And when we, when we joyfully and generously give them, uh, we lose nothing. And we gain very, very much. We're storing up treasure where it will stick. The third very powerfully useful implement in the hands of God for building up His body to, to take over this world for Christ one soul at a time is our words. He says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Let no unwholesome word get past your lips. But only such a word as is good for edification. That means for building up. According to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. That's 
Quite a statement. The word unwholesome, the word that translates unwholesome there means rotten. Rotten. Uh, Many years ago when our kids were uh, really little, we had a tradition every year about this time. We would lay a bunch of newspaper over the carpet in the dining area and then we'd cover the dining table with newspaper too and we would take a great big pumpkin and we would go at that pumpkin, us and the kids, and we would take the top off and we would gut that pumpkin and it made a ridiculous mess. In fact, if it weren't for the newspaper, we'd have to re-carpet every year. And, and then we'd make a jack-o'-lantern, we'd carve a jack-o'-lantern out of that, and then we'd put a candle in the jack-o'-lantern, and it would sit on the porch on Halloween night. And one of the things that we did with that jack-o'-lantern that I loved was I would, I would go hide in the house in the dark, and the kids, I'd cover it up, and it'd have a candle in it, and the kids would come looking for me with Debbie. And then as soon as they got to where I was, I would just pop up, pull the towel off, and scare the daylights out of them. And then I'd run all over the house chasing them with this jack-o'-lantern. My daughter told me she still remembers that with great fondness. But the mess that we made uh, digging the guts out of that pumpkin was huge, but it was nothing. It was nothing compared with the deconstruction of that pumpkin that occurred from the inside out if we left it on the porch about one day too long. I've never seen anything rot as fast as the inside of a pumpkin. And, and, and when it does, it just decomposes at such a rate that it just sort of liquefies and it collapses on itself. And you have this mush sitting on your porch that you know some teenage vandal would love to get his hands on. That's what happens, guys, to the hearts of our brothers and sisters when rotten words come out of our mouths. That's what happens to the body of Christ when we speak things that should never get past our lips. What do you think it would be like if we did this in the power of the Spirit? We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God means for us to do this. What if we did this? What if, what if there was no more, in all of our conversation, there were, was no more hurt caused by selfish and prideful words? What if There was no more gossip in the name of prayer requests. What what if there was, and I'm guilty, guys. What if uh, there was no more sexual innuendo? No more coarseness and harshness to our words. What What if all of the endless complaining and lamentation about the state of the world and the country and our personal situation? What if all the fearful words about things that are not worthy of any fear at all just stopped? And those words didn't come out of our mouths. What would our conversation be like? I think some of us would be saying a lot less than we do. And I would surely be one of them. In James chapter 3, James says that the tongue is like a spark of fire. A little tiny spark that sets ablaze an entire forest until there's nothing left but ash. It shouldn't surprise us, guys, that 
our words are powerful because we're created in the image of the one who spoke everything into being with word. He said, let there be, and there was. On judgment day, he will judge all who remain unredeemed on that day with a word. Jesus will return with the with the sword coming out of his mouth. And what is that sword? That sword is the word of God. Words are exceedingly, exceedingly powerful. And God intends for us to, <laughs> he intends for us to give them back to him. Because he, he bought them. He bought us for himself and he bought every word that comes out of our mouths for himself. The fourth tool, implement of construction that God intends to claim back is our hearts. In verses 31 and 32, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and all malice be put away from you. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Look at that list. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. Who would have thought that the God who gave us everything in the first three chapters of this letter would have to give us a command like that? But here it is. The key to putting all those things away is to forgive one another as Christ, as God and Christ forgave us. And that brings us to the how part of this thing. And how God uses us to reclaim for Him what He has redeemed. And to me, this is the, the really beautiful part of this passage. Because uh, His answer is by giving away the grace that we received from Him. By spending our outrageous riches on each other in order to build up his body in Christ so that that body will be very, very powerful in the world. Chapter 4, verse 30 is, is to me an amazing verse that tells us, it tells us how God motivates holiness, how he, how he moves us, the recipients of his grace to holiness. And it's amazing that he does so by taking us back to our calling. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Isn't that amazing? That wording is very, very intentional. And and some of you here should be remembering the connection. Because in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 when he was giving us this amazing run-on sentence of outrageous riches that have been lavished upon us by God, he said, In Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation, not just Jews but Gentiles, when you listen to that message and you believe that message, you were sealed into Christ by the promised Holy Spirit who was given as a down payment of your inheritance, your eternal inheritance. And that down payment came looking forward, pointing to God laying hold of His inheritance. Redeeming the possession that He bought with the, with the shed blood of His own Son. 
And, and Paul is saying, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, he, our commission, as we've said, our commission is grounded upon and empowered by our calling. Our calling is whose we are and what we have been given in Christ. It's everything in chapters 1 through 3. There's a reason that the book is laid out the way it is. One imperative in three chapters and 60 imperative imperatives in the next three. And the hinge is, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And so we should expect Paul to keep going back to that calling. And that's exactly what he does. That's what he does here. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You'll notice in each of these commands that we're looking at, there's a place Paul never goes that we might expect him to go. He never goes to doubt of our standing. He always goes to the certainty of our standing. That's his appeal. That's what the appeal to godliness is is founded upon because, because the very ground of godliness is the grace of God. Beloved, I, I believe with all my heart that doubt has never produced one single act that God calls righteous in the entire history of God's church. Whatever is not from faith is sin. And faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is believing the promise of God in Jesus Christ and believing it and counting it as true like a child counts a promise as true. He trusts it. He banks on it. And he acts on it. And that's, that's what we do. And that's what Paul is saying. That's, that's what will move us not to grieve the Spirit. And the way we grieve the Spirit, by the way, is by violating the commands that surround that verse. All these things that tear down. All right. In verses 31 and 32, when he says to put aside all these very, very divisive behaviors that all have to do with this, this spirit of enmity and ill will toward brother, your brother and sister, he says that the, here's how you do that. You forgive as you have been forgiven by God in Christ. Again, he's pointing back to chapter 1, in verses 7 and 8. He said, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. He's saying, he's saying forgive that way. Do you want to know, guys, how far you should have to go to forgive a sin that another person has committed against you, especially another brother or sister in Christ? You don't have to look any further than the cross. That's how far God requires you to go because this is all about imitating Christ. It's forgiving as you have been forgiven by God in Christ. Um, This is... uh, Again, a very, very, very big deal to God. Um, read Matthew 18 sometime. You see what I mean? Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God. 
as beloved children. See, he goes, again, he goes right back to the calling. What made us beloved children? Chapter 1. Verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself on what basis? According to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. So, so on what is our sonship and heirship as children of God based? Grace. The grace of God. And so he again takes us right back to the calling. That's how we actually become imitators of God as we, we camp out in our calling in this extravagant wealth that God has poured out upon us in Christ. And then he says, and I'll, this is really a great way to, to end this, obviously, but he says, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. When he says walk in, a good way to think of that is walk around in. When you sit down and when you rise up and when you walk by the way, from the time you wake up in the morning until the time that you fall asleep at night, Live this out. This is the, this is your daily experience. Walk in love. And, and your template is the love that Jesus Christ has lavished upon you. Love as He loves. Love as He loves you. And how did He demonstrate His love for you? How did God demonstrate His love for you and prove it? Jesus died in your place. When he deserved nothing but glory and you deserved nothing but hell. You and me, all of us. That's love. Enemies. He loves enemies. And that's what he calls us to do. And then the very, very last part of this. I used to read this thing about an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma, and I just kind of passed over it and said, yeah, that's Jesus, that's not us, and that's not part of our assignment. We don't, we're not going to give ourselves as a sacrifice. And then I started thinking about the language there. Do you know there are three categories, major categories of offering in the Old Testament? First is the sin and guilt offering, and, this, and that offering is the payment, it represents, it pictures the payment to God for the debt of sin by the shedding of blood of an animal that stands in the place of the person. Well, animals can't pay for the sins of men. That was a picture of the one who would pay for the sins of men, and that perfect sacrifice is Christ, so Christ fulfills the sin offering. The second category of offering is the whole burnt offering. And the whole burnt offering was the dedication of self. The offerer brought the animal, laid his hands on the head of it, and the offering, the whole animal was sacrificed on the altar, laid up on God's altar and consumed by God. The offerer didn't get to eat any of that one or of the first one. And that's a picture of dedication of the whole self. Jesus obviously fulfilled that one too, and I believe that's the one that this is talking about. 
And the third category of offering, which is really the pinnacle of the whole sacrificial system, is the peace offering. By the way, the Lord's Supper, it covers all of those. It pictures all of those because Christ fulfills all of those. But that peace offering is the one that the offerer actually got to eat some of together with the priests and God. It was a sit-down dinner with God celebrating accomplished peace with God. And the, there was a, a Jewish man from Tel Aviv University that came to seminary when I was there, and he explained this progression to us. In Leviticus 8 and Leviticus 9, when the offerings are actually being done, the order is always sin and guilt offering, whole burnt offering, peace offering. And he wasn't a Christian. And he was laying out for us the progression of our access to God in Jesus Christ. Jesus pays the debt of our sin. He's the perfect sin and guilt offering. He calls us in response to that gift to dedicate, to lay our entire selves on his altar. And then we get to celebrate our peace with God. When this says that Jesus offered himself, he offered himself in our place, but he offered himself, gave himself up, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a soothing aroma. Do you know which of those three offerings that phrase soothing aroma is most consistently associated with? The second one, the whole burnt offering. Romans 12, verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that he spent the first 11 chapters setting before us. The grace of God in Jesus Christ by which the righteousness of God is given to men. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And that word worship, it means worship. The, the service, the, the, the service, the Greek word that's used there is about service and worship. Now, um, I gotta wrap up, I know, but I gotta tell you about one little thing that happened this week. Um, I had the, an unexpected privilege this week of, uh, going to, uh, sit in on a preaching class at Reformed Theological Seminary, and the guy teaching it was Sinclair Ferguson. And, he said something that uh, was amazing to me. At first start started, I thought it was kind of cute. He said his daughter asked him once, or said to him once, Dad, if you want to get people to take notes when you preach, just give them three things to do. And they'll take notes. Because people want to know what to do. And Paul is telling us what to do, but look at how he tells us. And Dr. Ferguson said to his daughter, he said, first he, he said to her, I could care less whether people take notes when I preach or not. He said the second thing, he said, I would far rather show them and point them to the glories of Christ than tell them what to do. Doesn't mean he never gives instruction. It just means that he prefers to show off Christ. And then he said something, and I thought this was really, just off the top of his head, he said, the ultimate telos, and telos means the, the ultimate goal or aim. The ultimate telos of preaching is to instruct the mind in order to inflame the affections, in order to subdue the will, in order to bring us to true worship of God. Let me read that one more time. 
the ultimate telos of preaching is to instruct the mind in order to inflame the affections, in order to subdue the will, in order to bring us to the true worship of God. And you know what's really sad is that when he said that, the first thing I thought of in my feeble brain is where's, where's the doing? And I realized the doing is in the worship. It's not that the worship replaces the doing. It's that doing, obedience, is worship. And that's what Romans 12, 1 is saying. Lay yourself up on God's altar because of the outrageous grace and mercy and love that he has poured poured down upon you and me. Lay yourself on his altar joyfully and obey him and be useful to him and live for him because he is your life. He's your whole purpose for existence. He is your eternal inheritance. He is all of your good. And he gives you plenty to do that is that is marvelous, marvelous in the doing. And we do it because our minds have been instructed and our affections have been set on fire and our wills have been subdued and we have finally been brought to truly, truly worship our beautiful God. Beloved, our calling is is to hand back to God that which He has redeemed and to do so, to do so because He has infected us with His grace and we are controlled by His grace. Loving Father, thank You Thank you for all of these magnificent, precious and magnificent promises that you have set before us. Father, teach us to always go back and look upon the person and the work of our Savior and Master, Jesus Christ, our beautiful Savior and Master, that we might be set on fire for you. We might build up your church and your church, Father, would go into this world as individuals and together, that we as your church would go into this world and we would proclaim and adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.